Welcome to another podcast from the BCC team. Our aim is to bring you a message that will help you live a better, more God-centered life. For more information, go to bcc.church. Good morning. What did we say? G'day. Um, Mark said I look redder. Not so white. <laughs> it's not because I'm blushing, it's because I've been in the sun. I was talking to Nikki this morning on Messenger. She preached yesterday in church. She said it was 38 degrees. So I'm feeling the cold a little bit. My thumb is numb still. <laughs> it's actually numb. I can't feel my thumb. Anyway, it's great to be with you again. As you know, we have a, a real love for you as a church. And, uh, you know, for those of you who don't know who I am, I'm Gary. And uh, we did spend five years here in the UK, actually, uh, serving with Assemblies of God. And then God uh, called us back to Australia. We honestly thought we'd been in the UK for a long, long time. Uh, we were enjoying our role uh, with Assemblies of God and working with churches like yours and Mark and Liz on our team. It was fantastic. And uh, we just said to God, if you want us long-term uh, in this nation, then you need to open up a door for us to lead a church because that's what we felt was like for our next season and, um, uh, of leadership. And we thought it was the right thing. And God, you need to open up a door in London because that's the only place I'd want to live. I've been all over England and I only like London, sorry. And uh, I mean, I love Liverpool. We won't mention the football. No, let's talk about the football. No, no, anyway. Um, uh, but, you know, London is the place that we love. But God didn't open up a door for us. You know, we prayed into that for about two years. And then we said, God, well, if you're not going uh, to keep us here long term, then send us back home. And if it's going to be home, it needs to go back to Brisbane. And then so just out of the blue, a, a, a phone call came. It was literally that left field uh, in the midst of a momentum and all the rest of it. And God just plucked us up and took us back home. And so we've been there for a year. And uh, we've seen about 100 people added to the church, uh, which is good. We've got a long way to go. It's a smaller church, and we've got a long way to go. But uh, God's doing some good things. It's not the Assemblies of God. It's with the apostolic denomination, which is a bit different. Um, they're more, more like governed like Elam. Those of you who know that I'm talking about, it's a little bit like that. Much smaller denomination, but very friendly people, good people. And so we're enjoying the journey. And so this trip was uh, organized a while back because our son still lives here. Our, you know, we've got three children, remember? Uh, so Stephanie, she's 26. And she's living in Adelaide. And then our other son, Chris, is 23. He lives in Nottingham, so he's still here. And uh, as I say, Nottingham. And he's still up there and uh, doing well. And then our youngest son, Jonathan, is with us in Australia. And he's in year 12, and he's handsome, and he looks pretty cool. And he's doing very, very well. And thanks to Br- uh, Prince, who's had a bit of input there as well. So thank you very much. God bless you. Well, you ready for the word this morning? Great. Well, Christmas is over. We're in the seventh week of the year. Can you believe that? For our church, some people haven't even been to church yet. It's the seventh weekend. I'm keeping records. I'm watching. Seventh weekend, they're still not in church. So I don't know. Uh, Australia, our biggest challenge in Australia is that people love the sunshine. So the sun's more attractive than church sometimes. And we live one hour from the Gold Coast and one hour from the Sunshine Coast. Some of the best beaches, probably arguably the best beaches in the world, are just one hour drive away. So there's a lot pulling and contending for that. And it's with that idea that I want to share with you. Um, you know, uh, as, uh, as uh, uh, the UK spent $77 billion at Christmas time. Did you realize that? Let me say that again. You spent, you spent $77 billion on Christmas presents in 2016. The average household in the UK spent £809 per household on gifts. Who do you think were the most generous in buying gifts in, in, in England? 
What city do you think was the most generous in buying gifts? No. Sheffield. Sheffield. Spent more on gifts than anyone else. Who do you think was second? Glasgow. No, exactly. <laughs> Who could believe that? <laughs> Stupid surveys. <laughs> Can't be true. Liverpool was third and bah humbug. Bristol was the worst. <laughs> now that I do believe. <laughs> anyway, uh, we have proven yet again that we are consumers. That we have given in to the disease, the pandemic called affluenza. And my concern is that this same idea of consumerism is infiltrated and has infiltrated the church. It was our anthropologist Richard uh, Robbins who recently said this, our consumption of goods obviously is a function of our culture. Only by producing and selling things and services does capitalism in its present form actually work. And the more that is produced and the more that is purchased and the more that is the more we have progress in prosperity. He says, obviously the goal is to have great GNP. That is the mark of a growing economy and our Western world. It is a measure of the success of a consumer society, and is, which is obviously to consume. So anthropologist Richard Robbins says, our goal is to consume, you see. And it's with this idea that uh, I'm, I'm contended on the inside. I feel tension on the inside of me uh, as, I, as I lead a church that this consumeristic attitude uh, not only prevails in our culture, but it seems to prevail in many of our lives as well. Uh, this morning, um, I want to challenge that idea. I want, to, I want us to bring some balance to the idea. My, my fear is that we have slipped into the same mindset in so many aspects and, uh, and our areas of our own life. Uh, so you see, what I've realized that most things that the devil attacks the church on are not always blatant or obvious. They're usually quite subtle. So Paul reminds us, he says, uh, be aware, be aware of the schemings the slowly progressive undermining of the devil. Not so much the blatant suddenly in your face, you know, when we see someone who's diagnosed with cancer, we say it's an attack of the devil. Not everything is always like that, you see, when it comes. In fact, he mostly works behind the scenes. He creeps in. He's a creep. He creeps in to our lives without us even knowing about it. So with that in mind, let's go to Eugene Peterson's rendering of Romans 12 and read it again. I put my glasses on. Um, not that I need them. I just look cool in them. <laughs> they look better than Mark's. <laughs> if I wore yours, I'd look like a fly. Anyway, <laughs> so, <laughs> so, <laughs> sorry, mate. <laughs> Segway. Okay, so here's what I want you to do, Message Bible. So here's what I want you to do, Romans 12, verses 1 and 2. So here's what I want you to do, God helping you. Take your everyday, ordinary life, your sleeping, eating, going to work and walking around life and place it before God as an offering. Embracing what God does for you is the best thing you can do for Him. Don't become so well-adjusted to your culture that you fit into it without even thinking. Instead, fix your attention on God. You'll be changed from the inside out Readily recognize what he wants from you and quickly respond to it. 
unlike the culture around you, always dragging you down to its level of immaturity, God brings the best out of you and develops well-formed maturity in you. I'm convinced that we are not meant to be overcome by the culture, but we are meant to influence the culture around about us. Kingdom culture is stronger than any culture. Yes, it's contextual, but the kingdom values always override and influence the culture that it's called into. Amen? Floyd McClung, uh, ex-lead director of uh, YWAM, uh, founder and director of All Nations, who's at the moment quite sick. Some of you know Floyd McClung, apostle and father in the faith to many, many people around the world. Some years ago, wrote a book called Holiness and the Spirit of the Age. And in there, he said these, there'll be five things, five enemies of the church. And I, and I believe he was prophetic, and I believe he's still correct today. Five enemies of the church, the good life gospel, the individualism, pluralization, secularization, and consumerism. You see, we are not called to be consumers. We're called to be consumed. That's our title this morning, consumer or consumed. Uh, We are to follow in the footsteps of Christ who in John 2.17 said, Zeal for your house, God, has consumed me. I feel like I'm a consumed person. when When I came to Christ, I didn't sign up. I didn't sign up for Sundays. I didn't feel like anyone told me that all I had to do was give away my Sundays. I I felt like I joined a revolution. I felt like I gave my life to Christ. I felt like I was part of a global cause. I felt like I was was now involved in the most important thing that anyone could ever experience. Maybe it was the way it was preached to me. Maybe it was my new Christians worker. I don't know. Maybe it was just what happened to me. But I seriously changed. I got consumed with something. Something happened on the inside. I didn't have an encounter with religion. The church was good. I didn't have an encounter with the church either. I had an encounter with Christ. I became a Christ follower, not a churchgoer. I became consumed with something. And it's affected me ever since. Can you tell? I feel like I live as a consumed person. I feel like some people you know, misunderstand me. At times, because I feel like, well, it's not important. This is important. They say, well, but this isn't. No, no, this is important. This about the kingdom of God is far more important than what you're raving on about right now. You see? And, and I just think that God's looking for more of that. I think he's looking for more people to be like him. Zeal for your house, John 2.17, has consumed me. Let's be consumed with the things of God. Let's not take another day, no, not even another hour to get, to get this year to say, I'm going to be consumed this year with all the things concerning the kingdom of God. Alan Hirsch, thought leader, missional movement uh, expert, he says this, there is no religious force in the West so powerful as consumerism. He said, you can achieve a whole lot more with 12 consumed disciples than with 1,200 religious consumers. You see, I think he's right. Let me ask you a question. What consumes you? What occupies your thoughts? What drives your priorities? What has the most monopoly on your money? What has the most monopoly on your time? What consumes you? It's a great question to ask at the outset of the year. What do we want to be cons- What is God asking you to be consumed with? Now, I know we go through seasons that can be tough. 
where we're consumed with so many other things. But I really do believe that God wants us to be consumed with his thing. You see, consumerism and consumeristic thinking, it just creeps into a church so easily and into our lives so easily. Let me just talk a bit about this. You see, consumerism causes us to confuse our wants and our needs. We get confused over the two. The things that we once wanted now become the things we must have. It drives us. Uh, the phone that we used to be happy with, now we've got to, we must have the latest. My daughter says things like this, you know, um, oh, I really want one of them. And rattles it off. And then a month later, I've really got to have one of them. A week later, all my friends have got one of them. I need one of them. You see? And a drive, you see how it moves, how our wants become needs. So whether it be our phone or our car or our lounge or our fridge or our house or our TV or the holiday, the laptop, the clothes. We used to be happy with the, the, the brick blackberry thing that hung off your ear, like, lifting weights. And now it's got to be the lightest thing, like, woo waterproof and all the rest of it and can do everything on it. It's got the best camera and the best whatever, you know, and cost you a thousand bucks, but who cares, you know. And, you know, we used to be satisfied with less, but now we crave for more. Drake recently sung, some of you know who Drake is. He said, I'm happiest when I can buy what I want and get high when I want. And I think that attitude has so pushed its way into so many Christians' lives as well. Erwin McManus wrote a book called Soul Craving, and it's got a lot of great concepts in it. But in there, there is this idea portrayed that we, we, we crave more. But what we're craving more is to be something. But because we don't know how to be, we crave for stuff. You see? And so we want to be alive. We want to be influential. We want to belong. We want to make a difference. I, I, I mean, anyone who doesn't want to make a difference... I'm talking about unsafe people now. They all want to belong somewhere. They want to make a difference. Right? But we fill that void with stuff. Achievements, belongings, career, sex, money, education, travel. That whole concept of, you know, remember the movie Eat, Pray, Love? With Julia Roberts. <laughs> <In it. laughs> um, eat, Pray, Love. You know, she, she had a house. She had a husband. She had a career. But she wanted more. That's what the movie's about. That's why it sort of grabbed the attention of this current generation. It grabbed, it grabbed the attention of people who were dissatisfied, you see. And she goes on this journey because she wants more. She wants more. Uh, some years ago, Oliver James wrote a book called Affluenza. And in there, he talks about the pandemic that affects the world, which is this uh, obsession that we've got to have more. We've got to have more money. We've got to have more status. We've got to have more fame. But in wanting more we, and our pursuit for all of that stuff, we don't become more. That's the idea of the book. It's not a Christian book. It's a wonderful concept when you read into it. You see, at this expense of getting more, we don't always become more. We fall into the trap of the joy to stuff ratio. They think the more stuff that we have, the happier we are. But millionaires commit suicide. Let's, let's just open our ears and look. Millionaires have multiple wives, multiple spouses, right? It doesn't always give you. 
So Christians are the same. We sometimes we live with this sense in which uh, there's a tension between being dissatisfied and being content. So Paul talks about, I know what it is to, to abound and to be abased, to have much and to go without. So Paul's marvelous. He, he, he's, he's worked out the tension. Are you with me? Am I making sense today? I know it's, I know it's a touchy issue, right? But we've got to work that out. Church, listen to me. We've got to work this out. We're blessed for a reason, right? But I think sometimes we're blessed to be blessed to be blessed rather than blessed to bless others. You know, and it's not a play on words, but so we, 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 live, we live dissatisfied. So Christians find themselves church hopping, continually checking out other spiritual shops, following the favorite speaker, music, conference speaker, whatever, shopping around. So the, the church is like a shop. We've got them in our own church as well. They're shopping. I say, keep on shopping. Go for it. Shop. Shop till you drop. Go for it. Right? And, and, and all looking for the mythical perfect church. And as soon as you join it, it's not perfect anyway. It's mythical. It doesn't exist. You see? And, and Christians find themselves endlessly traveling. Now, I know we're pilgrims on a journey. But that's a spiritual concept. It's not, we keep on traveling. So endlessly on holidays because we're restless on the inside because we haven't, yet discovered, we haven't yet discovered the power of being in mission. So we've got to get out and get an experience. So we live existentially. We're living ex- existentialists are trying to gather experiences. Are you with me? I feel bored, so I've got to gather experiences. Well, there's nothing more exciting than leading someone to Christ. There's nothing more exciting to be on mission. So some of us just need to discover that. So I say this is a practical thing, for example. Okay, we get four weeks annual leave, right? Well, take two of them for annual leave and take the other two and go on a mission trip. I'll tell you, it'll be better than your holiday. You'll you'll feel more fulfilled and more refreshed when you come back from it. You say, it'll be a busy schedule. You know, no, 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 friends. It's a spiritual thing. You see, change is as good as a holiday is a myth. Some people go on a holiday and come back and they're worse than they were before. You see? Um, so we, we find Christians spending, you know? We feel, we feel like if we've got stuff, we feel secure. If we've got more stuff, I feel sure about myself. So we spend to be, but we're not. We're just getting stuff. We're collecting it. I went down the other day and dropped some clothes off at the Lifeline bins. Do you have Lifeline? Lifeline or something like that, you know, one of the charity bins, you know. The charity bins were absolutely overflowing. There were six of them lined up in my local area. I mean, I, I, had, to, I had to almost climb inside that hatch <laughs> to try and make room to get our handful of bags in there. And as I drove, drove away, I thought to myself, how much stuff's in those bins? And I look at and as I'm opening and trying to open the shop, just on the bin lid, trying to get my stuff in there, I'm realizing, I'm, reali- I'm recognizing labels on the stuff. I'm thinking, you know, look at all the prices, you know. And, and it's, it, was just a, it was just a moment how wasteful we can be because we can get more stuff and then I don't want to wear it anymore and we throw it out. And I felt, I felt guilty, I really did, that I'd bought into that idea again. Eric Fromm, whoever he is, Eric Fromm said, um, if I am what I have and I lose all that I have, 
Who am I? You see, we, we can't build an identity by what we have. That's simply what I want to say there and keep moving. Uh, some years ago, they surveyed some university students in Australia and they asked them, what do, you, what do you want to achieve by the time you're 30? Three, zero. What do you want to achieve? Here was the top 10 answers. I want to own my own home. You know, it's a big thing in Australia. It's called the great Australian dream is to own your own home. Uh, number two, to be married. Number three, have lived and worked overseas. This is by the age of 30. You're staying with me, right? Um, to have been promoted twice. To have kids. To own two cars. To have taken a career break. What do you want when you're 30, right? You're staying with me, right? <laughs> uh, number eight, <laughs> earn more than 250000 a year. Own a holiday home. And number 10, retired. <laughs> Nothing on the list said to eliminate poverty, to help the homeless, to transform my, my community, to, to release captives, to, to help the orphans, to find a cure to malaria and AIDS or whatever it might be. None of that on the list. All self, self, are you with me? Self. I'm just wondering, before, if we'd have done that little survey with you, before I started preaching, I wonder what we would have responded. Hello. It's a challenge thought, isn't it? We, we, consumerism, see, drives a set of non-kingdom values. It drives it. It drives the temporal. And so, listen to me, we give first-class allegiance to second-class causes. We don't, we're, not, we're not driven by his priority. We're looking to get. So we make a living by what we get, but we make a life by what we give. We know that. You know, a few years back, um, I was on a plane from uh, coming back from South Africa. We'd been on a missions trip. I think on that particular trip, we had about 45 people with us, and we just spent time in South African townships, and we were renovating shipping containers and turning them into school facilities and for creches for children uh, because we're working with a friend of ours called Colleen Walter from Safe and Sound and uh, she has uh, has 10,000 students under her care uh, across township schools that she has established, that she works collaboratively with the local elders and uh, it's a fully indigeneity program and she's the director of it, she's the visionary behind it and we had the privilege over the years of sending teams to do renovation work in those areas. Travelling on my way back, I'm sitting down in the seat, and uh, there's, there's, I, 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 I think I had some uh, friend with me, so they, or might have been, even been one of my family, and they were on the window seat. I scored the aisle. I hate the aisle seat. Uh, sorry, not the aisle seat, the middle seat. Middle seat, I hate it. In the middle seat, and then someone sat beside me here on the left. And it was this girl. She sat beside me, and uh, she was, uh, her name, I think from memory, was Alison. She was about 23 years of age. Uh, she was from Wales. And she came in, and she had shorts on up to about here, and she sat down. I noticed her legs. I wasn't looking at her legs, by the way. But I looked at her legs because they had lots of marks and sores on them. So I asked her, I said, um, what's with the legs? 
I just wanted to know if she was contagious, you know what I mean? Right? Because <laughs> these, these marks on her legs didn't look too cool, right? And she'd obviously been scratching away at something, and <laughs> they're all over her legs anyway. So then she begins to tell me the story. I mean, there was so much passion that oozed from this young Welsh girl. It was amazing. And she began to tell me how she had just been volunteering at Addis Ababa up in Ethiopia, uh, saving whale sharks, in a marine environmental thing. And she was doing that and she'd been there for six weeks and the mozzie bites were because she was living in tents and all this sort of stuff and there was improper accommodation and it was so cool. I ate next to nothing and I was out in the middle of nowhere and, you know, rescuing these rail sharks. I said, what are you doing now then? She says, I'm flying over to Australia, then on to New Zealand. I said, why are you going to New Zealand for? Anyway, <laughs> it's just an Aussie Kiwi thing. <laughs> um, and she went to New Zealand. She said, oh, I'm going to volunteer. And she told her to say, with passion about this other thing that she was going to volunteer for. I went, wow, really? And then they said, what are you going to do after that? And she goes, oh, I'm coming back via Sydney. Then I'm going to fly up into Asia. And I'm going to do da 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 And I'm flying all the way. And there was this passion oozing from her. I said, is anyone paying you for all this? And she says, no, I saved up my own money. I said, how much did it cost? 25,000 pounds. She said, I've been saving for this since I was 15, working part-time jobs and all the rest of it, you know, as a Welsh girl with this passion inside of her. Well, she talked nonstop with passion, with tears, with laughter, telling me everything she was doing for like 45 minutes. I know you find that hard to believe. I did not get a word in. I really didn't. I didn't get a word in. And then she says to me, and what do you do? I had to think carefully about what I was about to say. But I said to her, the first thing that came to mind was, I save kids. I said, so I've just come out from South Africa and this is what we've been doing. So I began to tell her. And without in any way making her feel inferior, which is important when you're talking with people who don't know Jesus, right? I explained to her that I admired her passion. I loved her commitment and sacrifice and that only God could give that to her. And that I hoped one day she'd find that she'd live for something greater than saving whale sharks. She understood that. She understood that. It was a moment, you see. But I looked at her, and, I, and I was just, it just, as I was putting this message together, it just so sat with me that some people uh, are consumed with something. And some people aren't. Consumed with nothing. God wants us to be consumed with kingdom purposes. That it would dominate literally all of our prayers, all of our thinking. It would alter what we do week by week, not just our Sundays. But it would make a call on our every day. You see? Let us live like that. You see, the kingdom spirit, is it not embodied in this idea? For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life away. As a ransom for many, it so encapsulates kingdom spirit for me. I believe God is looking for that. Now listen, write this in your notes. Serving others is the greatest antidote for consumerism. Serving others. You see, the world needs an authentic, selfless, sacrificial, Christ-centered, others-focused, spirit-empowered, word-based church. That's what it needs. You see, when we no longer focus on ourself, our view, our needs, our preferences, our opinions, our comfort, what we want, the church has a new tone. It takes on a new sound and people recognize it. Who recognizes it? 
the world recognizes it. You see? The church literally, and I'll say this the right way, is actually not about you. It's about the world that we're trying to reach. And once that was you, you see, once we were the lost, those in need of his grace and his mercy and his truth, and now we have become those that now reach them, if that makes sense. You see, I realized the other day that I really only get two days out of 365 in a year to influence people in my church. We don't have a small group program, and even if we did, most people wouldn't go to them. Probably half the church, we know from stats, half the church will probably go to small groups. Some churches do an extraordinary job and get it up as high as 70 and 80%. Most churches don't, unless they're a cell-based model. Even cell-based models tend to have about 80% of their whole congregation going to that stuff. So even if we did that, but the thing you've got to work it out, I get about 40 minutes every fortnight because people don't go to church every week. In fact, the average now is once a month. Now, church, the average is fortnightly. So I get about 40 minutes every fortnight. When you do the maths on that, I get, less than, I get less than two days a year to speak into their life, to influence them and convince them of the purpose of the kingdom of God. That to me, listen to me, I want, to say, I want you to hear my heart on this, that is shallow religion. There's nothing more than that. It's just shallow. And we can make and point the finger at whoever we want in terms of denominationalism, but friends, there is no difference between us and them sometimes, and the Spirit of God certainly doesn't make it distinctive in any way. I know it's hard to say that, but it has to be said. You see, and this, uh, you can see it's, it's, it's a tension inside of me that I believe we've got, to, we've got to work it out. Martin Luther King said these words. He said, life's most persistent and urgent question is this. What are you doing for others? Consumerism in its very nature, is self-focused. Being consumed is others-focused. The kingdom is always others-focused. In Psalm 110, verse 3, it says, Your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power, O God. That word volunteers is nordab in the Hebrew, which literally means a volunteer for war. It literally carries this idea of surrender, that my life is a free will offering. That's what it means. Psalm 110, verse 3. Go home and read it. Your version may say something different, but mine says your people shall be volunteers in the day of your power. Let me move on from there. You see, there's something uh, that God is looking for within our churches, that we need to be consumed rather than consumers. If we want to overcome consumerism and spiritual complacency, then there has to be a holy urgency in our heart to realize the task before us is great. I'm urging you today to get, in, to get engaged with what, God's want, what God wants, to get involved and to be consumed with his purposes. Back in 1860, 1860, 1861, there was this, uh, this group that emerged, it quickly emerged and then quickly faded away into history. It was called the Pony Express. It was led by three guys. Uh, their names were Russell, Majors, and Waddell, or Waddell, some say. 
Alexander Majors was a religious man, a Christian man. He was of the three partners, and he made all of the riders sign an oath. The Pony Express was developed to deliver uh, mail from the east to the west coast of, of America. They had no mail service. So they hired 1,200 riders to ride 1,900 miles on horseback from the Atlantic to the Pacific and deliver mail until they developed a mail service. It only went for 19 months was its entire life. Right? But during that time, they delivered 35,000 pieces of mail intrinsic to engaging the new California into what was happening on the other side of America because gold had been explored and all the rest of it. So anyway, go and read us a marvelous story. And uh, these men were signing up for their life. The men they signed up included William Cody, who you've come to know as Buffalo Bill. He was only 15 years of age when he signed up as a rider. Englishman Robert Haslam was called Pony Bob. He was 20. He died during service with them. Jack Keatley, he was only 15, and he rode with them the entire 19 months and survived. Billy Tate was only 14 years of age. They found him with about eight or nine arrows through him, and the Indians did not take his scalp because they respected the fight that he had put up against them. Such were the spirit of the people they recruited. This was the ad that they ran in the newspaper. This is what it said. Wanted, young, skinny, wiry fellows, not over the age of 18. They must be expert riders, willing to risk their de- willing, willing to risk death daily. Orphans are preferred. When you signed up for that, you knew it was all or nothing. This is what I realized about Christianity: it's an all or nothing deal. Religion's not. Churchianity's not. Going to church is optional. But becoming a follower of Christ is an all or nothing deal. We need to be consumed. Amen? Amen. I finish with this because our time is done. I remember years ago, uh, the man that we were saved under, David Cartledge, is one of the old Pentecostal pioneers, the old two-stop, two-step hopper on the stage. Just, he didn't teach them how to dance. Just follow me, he would say. Just follow me, this is how you dance. <laughs> like that. And I had images of him just recently dancing up there. I still remember a song that he used to sing. And it's one of my favorite verses, Galatians 2.20. I've been crucified with Christ, nevertheless I live. And the life that I live in the flesh, I now live by my faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. I've been crucified with him. I don't belong to myself. What part of this don't we get? We haven't signed up for religion. We've, been, we've signed up for the greatest cause in the world. Amen. My friends at BCC, listen to me carefully. Let's be consumed. Amen? Let's be consumed. The future is bright. And it's bright for the city if we will live as consumed people. Amen. God bless you.